the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. It means we've made it through a complete new week. We're getting ready to end the week, which means we get to go to church this weekend. We get to be servants of the Lord. We get to be used to bring encouragement, to edify, to just be God's arms and be his heart for the people that he loves so much, the people for whom he died. That's the church of Jesus Christ. He died for you. He loves you. But he saved you that you might be his ambassador to others. And every Sunday, and here at Calvary Chapel on Friday night as well, we get the opportunity to do that. So church, this Sunday, go and let the Lord bless you and use you to bless others. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. This program is dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever they are, uh, what we believe, why we believe it, maybe just some things going on in your life. We'll do the best that we can to answer them. You can call us by dialing 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. New Numerically, that's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app and uh, just hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Before we head into some questions, just really quickly, uh, a reminder, I mentioned it yesterday on air when, on Paula's show, that uh, we will not be here live on Monday. Paul and I are going to a funeral of a dear, dear friend of ours, a, a pastor from uh, Calvary Chapel uh, in Beaumont, Texas. Um, and uh, so we won't be able to make that five-hour drive in time to get it back uh, over here for the radio show. So bear with us on uh, a rebroadcast on Monday, and then, Lord willing, I'll be back with you live on Tuesday here at the, the studio. Okay, here's our first question. This is a question that comes from Nacho. Uh, from our email inbox, it says, Pastor Ron, after your teaching about David and Bathsheba on Wednesday, you made a point of how easy it would have been and how much trouble would have been averted if David would have just confessed to his sin of adultery. So my question is, after Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 5, what do you think would have happened to David if he confessed? What would have happened to Bathsheba? You know, not to, speculation is um, uh, often pointless, but the reason I really want to take this question is because what I hope to be able to do and what I wanted to be able to do with the Bible study last Wednesday night was help people now avoid falling into sin. And once they have, and we do, but once they have, uh, how to make things right. You know, it's interesting, and I'm going to jump way into the New Testament for just a moment, Nacho, but uh, it's interesting. When Peter really blew it, 
uh, and his sin was unbelief. He denied Jesus three times. He was truly sorry. He didn't try to deny it. He didn't try to cover it up. He looked at Jesus, and Jesus looked at him, and he knew he was caught. And, of course, because his heart was genuinely repentant, Jesus appeared to him and restored him. That's really important. So, yeah, a lot of trouble would have been averted in the rest of David's life had David simply gone to Nathan the prophet as an example and said, Nathan, you are the man of God. I need to repent. I need to offer sacrifices. That's what would have happened in the Old Testament. I've done this horrible thing. Well, then all of the cascading consequences that David encountered for the rest of his his tenure as king, uh, those things didn't have to happen. Now, here's why we don't do that, Nacho. We don't do it because we're too proud. We don't want people to know that we messed up. We do it because we're afraid of consequences. Well, what's going to happen if I confess Uriah is one of my mighty men? Uh, my reputation's going to suffer, but his reputation's not going to suffer any more than it did or any more than it will, ultimately. But he could have been right with God. We know from Psalm 32 that David, for one year, in keeping this secret to himself, trying to pretend it didn't happen, pretending he got away with it, He was physically ill. He was empty inside. He couldn't hear from God again. Why? Because he was trying to cover up sin. And there's no more miserable existence for a Christian than to be sort of on the outside looking in. We know God. We belong to God, but we can't hear from him because we're trying to pretend that he doesn't know about our sin. And in this particular sin of adultery, had he confessed right away, Uriah wouldn't have been murdered. There were other men of David's mighty men who were killed in the same battle that Uriah was. They wouldn't have been killed. Their blood wouldn't be on David's hands. So think about those things. The baby with Bathsheba would have been alive. So he he, he could have minimize the damage but he didn't do that yes his sin was horrible but here's the great thing for you Nacho and for me and for everybody in this audience if we confess our sins he God is faithful to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness and practically what that means is that not one Christian ever again for one more minute has to pretend that they're okay, everything's all right. And at the same time, be without the voice of God. We can hear the voice of God. We can open the word and God will speak to us. But it requires honest, genuine repentance. Now, the question of what would have happened Bathsheba, we can only speculate about, and I told you a speculation really doesn't have any value, but I can tell you this, she would have had a baby that, instead of dying, would have lived. You know, Jesus said, too much is given, much is required. In the context there is always much more is required. Uh, Somebody who's got amazing gifts given by God, we're more accountable than those who don't have such a, a giftedness. Those who have been called to be pastors, my profession, um, we, we have been given so much by the Lord. It's such an honor and a privilege that God expects more from us. Those who have the gift of worship, music, those who have the gift of giving, if you have the gift of giving, think about this, you probably have a lot of money. So those who have the gift of giving, they've been given much by God and more is expected. On a side note, I think that principle works even for unbelievers. I think about a guy, and I just use the same example all the time, but there's thousands of them I could use. I think about Tiger Woods. Uh, Almost, without argument, the best golfer who's ever played. But because he tried to cover up his sin, because he was finally exposed... It all comes crashing down. It's as though God reached down and touched him in the womb and gave him this gift. He was a prodigy. The same thing is true for people who are born into money. People who can 
in the secular world sing or dance or act better than others. They have been given a leg up in this world by God. And even though they deny God, they're responsible to him. And when they crash and burn, believe me, they crash and burn. So, Nacho, thank you very much. I hope that answers your question. Here is our next question from Jonathan. Interesting question, Jonathan. Where in the Bible does it prove the existence of God? Uh, Jonathan, the Bible doesn't prove the existence of God. The Bible assumes the existence of God and then declares the existence of God. Now, we know that proof of God is all around us in the natural world, the physical world, but also in the supernatural world. The fact that God gives us a conscience so that we don't stray too far from him without at least God putting up a fight for us. And the fact that we can look in the eastern sky every morning and we know the sun's going to come up. David says the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day they pour forth speech. There's no language or nation where the speech isn't understood. So I really do believe the Bible itself proves the existence of God. But the Bible never takes on the task of trying to prove it. I think the onus, Jonathan, would be on the person who said, well, the Bible doesn't prove the existence of God. Well, well, what does it prove? In our study tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to do the first 15 verses. Wherever Paul would go on a missionary journey, he would simply begin reasoning through the scriptures. And Paul had the same kind of questions that we get 2,000 years later. But you know, he just opened the Word and let the Word of God, the supernatural Word of God, and the Holy Spirit of God do the work. You see, it's not our job, Jonathan, to prove the existence of God. Our job is to declare Him. And when we do that, when people's hearts are open, they'll get saved. If their hearts aren't open, even if you were able to offer concrete, scientific, overwhelming proof, they still wouldn't get saved. Because they don't want to. They don't want to stop sinning. You know, Jonathan, what we believe as Christians isn't just blind, dumb faith. You know, people act, even some Christians, unfortunately, act like what we believe is sort of like a myth or a fairy tale. And and because we believe it, it makes us feel good about ourselves. Our faith is based on overwhelming evidence. And I'll tell you the one thing that does prove the existence of God is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. If you'll take an honest look into the empty tomb... And you'll think about Jesus saying that they would kill him, then that on the third day he would rise from the dead. If you honestly examined the historical fact that though they tried to produce a body, they couldn't. The evidence for Jesus being God in human flesh is beyond dispute. Now you can reject it, but you can't deny it because it's like the verdict is in. I hope you're a believer, Jonathan. If you are, don't argue with people about the existence of God. Just declare it. Just declare it. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Donald. He wants to know, does God ever get angry? Donald, he really does. But, but here's the thing. He gets angry at sin. He gets angry at all the evil in this world. But he never gets angry at you. Now, he will let consequences come to bear for your sin. He has to do that to teach us not to sin. I guess we sort of have thick heads. But but he never gets angry at us. And sometimes we treat God like he's angry at us instead of angry at sin. Let me give you an example, Donald. If you were to... Um, spend all day today looking at pornography. God would be really, really angry and disappointed. 
but he'd be angry because he couldn't speak to you. He'd be angry because you're getting ripped off. The enemy is lying to you. Maybe you decided to go today and smoke marijuana or get drunk. God would be angry, not at you. He'd be angry at the evil that has stolen you, at least temporarily, from him. One of the things I tell our church here at Calvary Chapel all the time is we've got to get this notion of an angry God out of our minds and hearts. We've got to get to the place where we understand that God is love and all he wants is the very best for you. And yes, he gets angry when you settle for less than God's best or when he has a great plan for you, but he can't use you in that plan because of willful sin. Yeah, he's angry. His heart is broken. But it's because he knows that he has so much better for you. Yeah, he gets angry. A lot. But his anger is righteous anger. It's a jealous anger. He's jealous not of us, but for us. He doesn't get angry like you and I get angry, Donald. He just hurts. That's the best I can do with that one. Here is a question from Kenneth. Kenneth, I've had this question a lot. Do you believe Christians can lose their salvation? The answer, Kenneth, is no, because salvation is not up to us. He who began a good work in me and you, Kenneth, will be faithful to complete it. He is the author, the beginner, and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. The Bible doesn't say he started it, but you have to finish it. So can a Christian lose their salvation? The answer is unequivocally no. Now, when I say that, there's a whole bunch of people who believe, yes, Christians can lose their salvation. It happens all the time. People that lose their salvation, at least that's the way it appears to us in this world, God knew they were never his all along. You know, Kenneth, there's one verse, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. People have said, well, you should change your position on this, or you should change your position on that. Well, here's one of those places. If anybody would reason through the scriptures with me, and they could exegete Ephesians 1, 14, it says that God gave us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Just that one verse, if anybody could explain to me how that means anything other than God guarantees that those who are his remain his, then maybe I'd be willing to open my position. But then I'd have to deal with the Gospel of John where Jesus says the Father has you in his hand and I have you in my hand and no one can snatch you out of my hand. God wants us to be secure, Kenneth. Every time I get this question, and I get it often, I told you, every time I get this question, I, I say the same thing. You know, I've been saved for a little over now, 27 years. And I've never had a single minute's doubt about my salvation. Now, that doesn't mean I haven't blown it. It doesn't mean that I, I, I've always done exactly the right thing. It just means that when I messed up, I knew because I was saved, he loved me to such a degree that all I have to do is say, I'm sorry, Dad. I love the fact that Jesus said, Our Holy Father, God Almighty. But we can call him Abba because of the spirit that he's given us. And for me, Kenneth, that always brings the, the idea in my head that, that, that I can sort of hop on his lap when I mess up and say, I'm sorry, Daddy, I didn't want to do that, but I did. Or even I can say, I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. Well, my daddy's not going to reject me because he has exactly what he wants. Me coming back to him, asking for forgiveness, it's what he wants to do. So I realize how it can look like somebody who's made a profession of faith in Christ. Maybe somebody who's been in church for a few years can decide that now they want to sin so they've convinced themselves 
God's not real, they walk away and we would look at that person and say, well, they lost their salvation. We all of us have to remember it's not ours to keep. It's his. He began our faith. He'll finish our faith. And when we get there to the end, those who are ever his will always be his. So, Kenneth, it doesn't depend on you. It depends only on him. And he's pretty safe and secure. I'm pretty happy about that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have them. Close out the week with some good phone calls. You guys are always more interesting than I am. Here's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, what are some of the signs that we're in the very last days? Uh, I think they're all around us. You can read uh, Paul's letter uh, to uh, to Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, the most personal of all of his epistles. Uh, it's the one he wrote when he realized that he was now going to die. And these are his last words. I always say sort of words from beyond uh, to Timothy, his young protege. How do we do it? Well, we, we listen to what he says. And he said that the world is going to be very much like it is right now. So all we have to do is look around the world that we're in. Second Timothy, or I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, that's always a day of judgment, will not come unless the falling away or the apostasy comes first and the man of sin is revealed. So the falling away has already begun. Now, the man of sin, we obviously know him as the Antichrist. He's not been revealed yet. But that's going to happen before the end. So right now, we can say that we're in the very last days because that drifting away from the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints, that's what Jude, the Lord's half-brother, told us to hold on to that that once and for all, I always like to say once and forever delivered faith. Well, people are abandoning it in droves. Again, that doesn't mean they were ever really his. But professing believers all over embracing unbelievable things. Things that just five years or ten years or let alone 15 years ago, we never would have believed possible. Now, Christians are changing their mind on all of these things. They're being won over by the world. So anonymous, look around. The falling away has already become. I can also point to some of the prophetic signs. Israel is still the center of the world's attention. Israel is still hated by every nation on this earth. Sadly, including much of the United States of America, we're not a danger to them, but we're certainly not their champion, as we have been since 1948. So just look around and see the things that are happening. Again, Second Timothy chapter 3, mark this, Timothy. In the last days, there will be perilous times, terrible times. And he describes the very world that we live in. So yeah, I think we're in the very last days. I have no idea, Anonymous, how many of those days we have left. But here's what I know. Jesus could return at any moment and when he does it will be so sudden that there won't be any time to think there won't be any time at all to respond if you wait it'll be too late now having said that let me finish off and I always do this we who are believers should not have rapture fever You know, that, that thinking that, well, I'm not going to do anything here because God's going to get us out of here anytime soon. Uh, we all want to be with Jesus. But Jesus said, occupy until I come. It means that the time that we have to do the work God left us here to accomplish is short. That's why Paul said, redeem the time, make the most of every opportunity. Every one of us, because we're in the last days anonymous, ought to get up every day with that refrain 
that I hope comes out of your lips every single day. Jesus, what about me and what about today? And if we'll do that, then we're occupying. So could he come today? He absolutely could. Will he come today? Almost assuredly not. However, today somebody might get saved. And if we're occupying, it might be that last Gentile. Paul writes about the, uh, the full number of Gentiles that must first come in. Well, that last non-Jew might give his or her heart to Jesus today. And then we could be out of here. But make no mistake in us, we are in the last day. And um, the signs are all around us. All around us. Hope that helps. Oh, I didn't know the music had started quickly. Well, now you can hear the music. We're at the end of our first half hour. Remember, we'd love your live calls and questions because you're better uh, entertainment than I am. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel. We will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our friday show 340-9585 for your live calls and questions you can email us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com here is a question we got during the break from our mobile app anonymously Uh, It says, in reference to your answer concerning David confessing his sin immediately, you said the illegitimate boy would have lived. How so, since you also say that God doesn't cause things to happen, but he knows what will happen. Are you saying that God caused the boy to die as a judgment? Uh, Anonymous, a couple of things. Now, I I always take exception to the use of the word illegitimate. Uh, There are no illegitimate illegitimate children. Um, And I know that wasn't your intent. But um, I just always call out because I want us to start thinking differently uh, about the children of, of um, people who aren't married. It, it's it's, it's a, a difficult situation. It's sad that they're born that way, but yet God loves them and blesses them. Now, secondly, I probably should have said, if I didn't, I apologize to everyone. I probably should have said that he probably would have lived. He probably would have lived. I think the story in Second uh, Samuel makes it clear that this was a judgment from God, a consequence of the sin. Um, people die as a result of the sin of others all the time. It doesn't mean God caused it, and certainly he knew what was going to happen, and David himself even acknowledges that. But this was a judgment. Uh, Too much is given. I'll say it again. Much more is required. And David, guilty of these grievous sins and then the cover-up. This was judgment. And and it's clear that may not sound fair to us. But remember, uh, God instantly took that baby into heaven. David acknowledged it himself. David understood that the boy died as a result of his sin, and I think that we can understand that. You know, when we think about the character of God and the difference between God causing things to happen and knowing that things are happening, um, you know, when God judges, people are going to die. And we may not like it, but, but nonetheless, judgment is a necessary part of the character of God because God is holy and God is just. And here was a case where his own king committed the worst possible sins and then was in a conspiracy to cover those sins up and judgment happens you know when we who are parents today uh, do dumb things mom and dad though, though they're Christians they divorce because they want to be happy we kid ourselves and think that our children are going to be okay they're not going to be okay 
And a lot of times those children completely walk away from the Lord because they'll see that mom and dad's Jesus had no value for them. And they walk away. Well, if those children stay away from the Lord, God's going to have to judge them. And he will judge the mom and dad for that sin. If they're real believers, they're going to lose a lot of rewards. They're going to look into those eyes on that day of judgment, the, the Bama seat. And they're not going to have any explanation for what they've done. And yet we get so casual about sin, we forget all about the judgment. The dad who goes home or the mom who goes home after work and can't relax without drinking or getting a little drunk. Or the professing Christian who goes home and sort of chills out with marijuana. Well, the consequence of that is going to be their children are going to do the same things. This is way off the point of the question, but I was at the gym not too long ago talking to a guy. He and his son were both in the sauna. This was back when the weather was a little bit colder, a couple of months ago. And I've um, uh, gotten to know him a little bit. And we're talking to his son about his son's a hockey player. And, and, and he was using really, really bad language. And I, I looked at him and I said to him, I said, do you know your son's here? He said, oh, he knows that I have a foul mouth and knows I don't mean anything by it. But, but he's going to talk like that. And my relationship with him is, enough, is such that I could lean over to the son and whisper his ear, don't cuss, pray for your dad. And it was okay, but the things we do have long-term consequences, and sometimes those consequences end up in judgment. Such was the case with David. So probably he would have lived. That's what I should have said, so thank you for pointing that out, Anonymous. Here is a question from Sam. Oh, here it is. Uh, The Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff, said there isn't a single verse in the Bible that talks about the rapture. Is that true? Uh, You know, Sam, I I, I don't listen very often to that program, but I think Paul and I were in the car on the day when that program, it was maybe two, three, four weeks ago. I don't remember how long ago now. But I remember a caller asking him that that very question and him saying that, and I was furious. Now, I'm furious, it's a relative statement, but it makes me angry because it's so dishonest. You know, at one time, Hank Hanegraaff, because I was listening to Hank Hanegraaff when I got saved 27 years ago, Hank Hanegraaff believed in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And out of his own mouth, I heard him say, no real Christian debates that there is going to be a rapture. The debate is on the timing of the rapture. And even way back then at that point, he hadn't decided what he believed about when that timing would be. But his his statement, his response was, no real Christian doubts there's a rapture because the Bible is clear. And then now, 27 years later, he tells somebody there's not a single verse in the Bible that talks about the rapture. Well, this is a man that's converted to Orthodox, the Orthodox faith, Eastern, Eastern Orthodox faith. So his doctrine of 27 years ago hasn't lasted, has it? Not just about the rapture, but about many, many things. Let me give you some verses that speak specifically and only about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Greek word harpazo. It means to be snatched up. The Latin rendering of that word is raptus or rapturo as a verb. That's where we get the word rapture from, even though the the English word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This isn't his coming to the earth. 
Revelation chapter 19, he's coming to the earth. But this is when we're caught up to meet him in the air. And then he says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And then verse 18, he ends that section by saying, therefore, encourage each other with these words. So Hank wasn't being really honest there, was he? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Paul gets to reveal the mystery of the rapture. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, and that's a euphemism for die, but we will all be changed. That's the word metamorpho. Oh, it's a, uh, um, uh, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. We will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Who is the we? Christians who are still alive. We will be changed. So I understand that there are different doctrines relative to the timing of the rapture, but it is simply dishonest to declare there's not a single verse in the Bible that talks about a secret rapture, and I think that's the exact words that Hank used on the program that Paula and I heard. And you see, that makes me angry. I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. I love the fact that um, we can open the Bible and we ought to be able to reason through these things, but it's just dishonest to say that there's not a single verse in the Bible. I could also point to lots and lots and lots of pictures of the rapture in the Old Testament. Sam, if you are interested, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com, and you can go to the very first Bible study that I did in Revelation chapter 4. I always reserve that. I've taught Revelation, I think, three times through our 23 years here. And uh, the very first chapter, or very first uh, um, uh, verse in chapter 4, after this, is always when I teach about the rapture and I go into great detail not only about the verses about the rapture and the explanation of those verses but about all of the pictures in the Old Testament that reinforce the idea of a rapture and the holiness of God. So, um, Sam, I hope that that helps. Um, I personally don't believe that, while I believe that Hank Hanegraaff is a brother in the Lord, uh, and while I once, uh, especially as a brand new believer, um, listen to him without fail daily, uh, I no longer believe he is a reliable expositor of the Word of God. I, I don't know how he ended up where he is, but he is no longer a mainstream evangelical Christian. Again, I do believe he is a believer. I think there's going to be a lot of people in heaven whose doctrine was wrong, and he'll be one of them. But here's a guy who's going to have to explain, a guy who's been given much, has a big platform. He's going to have to explain to Jesus how he got lost and how he could lead others astray. So uh, I don't recommend him anymore, I think, to listen to Hank. Uh, now you've got to be a, a, a Christian who is able to discern what is true from what is not true. Having said that, I want to say this as well. I'm really sad because this was a man that God used so powerfully in my early, early days as a Christian. I was caught up because I wanted to be caught up, but my very first church was prosperity churches. And God used him to lead me away from that false doctrine. Now he's fallen into a trap of his own false doctrine. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. The phones are really quiet today. Here's a question from Patty. She wants to know, why does God allow children to be born with defects? Well, I guess, Patty, the alternative would be to stop them from being born. But that would be inconsistent with his character. Every life is precious to the Lord. Those who are perfect and beautiful. Moses was no ordinary child. It was clear to everybody. But also those who are born with what you call defects. We live in a fallen world. Sin has taken 
its toll on this world. The whole creation, Paul writes, is groaning, waiting for the redemption. So it's not just people, it's the world, the, the ground that we stand on. Uh, imagine the people in, in Hawaii on the big island right now, what they're going through. And there's been a, a series of, of aftershocks that suggest that this could be uh, a, a Mount St. Helens type volcanic eruption. Can you imagine what that would do to the big island of Hawaii, the people that live there? Imagine the wealth that's concentrated there. And yet, creation is groaning. Why does God allow that? Well, that's just a natural consequence of sin. Well, in the same way, the child who's born with Down syndrome or the child who's born uh, with autism, uh, the child who's born missing a limb of some sort or the child who can't speak. Uh, I myself have a, a baby brother, Ricky Allen, uh, who I never got to see in person. He lived for 20 days before he died. Um, I've never seen him. My parents back then, it was different. You didn't talk about those things. It was a sort of a, a shameful thing. He was born uh, with the, his brain on the outside of his skull. Um, and my baby brother went to heaven to be with Jesus. Um, it'd be easy to say, why did God allow it? But remember, that life is precious. And while we see things temporally, the moment Jesus took Ricky Allen to heaven, he was perfect. And one day I'm going to meet him. I'm going to know who he is instantly. And then we won't ask, why did God allow him to be born with a defect? So I think sometimes, Patty, and again, I, I don't know you, so this isn't a, a, something to take personal, but I think a lot of times we Christians treat God like he owes us a trouble-free life. We had a couple in our church who had a baby at an age where they didn't think they could have babies anymore. Um, had two grown kids. Uh, actually, one of them was grown. The other was in our school. She graduates from high school. <laughs> I'm crying. Two weeks. And because of her age, and they did all the tests, and they basically said there's a 100% chance that this child is going to be born with Down syndrome. And they really, really pushed hard for an abortion. And of course, the mom and the dad said, hey, what do you mean abortion? We're Christians. We don't do that kind of thing. No, if the baby comes, we'll take and love whatever comes out. And there was a lot of prayer and there was almost no hope in the delivery room when the baby was being born. The doctors were sullen, expecting the worst. And they started begin to, to bring this little boy out of her. And your baby is your 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 baby is perfect. <laughs> That's what he said. I've I've called that child perfect every day for the rest of his life. He's now six years old. And I call him perfect to this day, and he knows exactly why. Imagine if all we wanted was a God who gave us what we expected or what we thought we deserved. God loves the children who are born with problems. Special needs kids matter a great deal to him, and they should matter to us as well. Um, Patty, can I say one other thing? Again, this isn't directed at you, but just because of the question. We who have been blessed with healthy children ought to be the first ones to make ourselves available, just for sheer gratitude of heart for what God has done. We ought to be the first ones to make ourselves available to parents who have challenging children. People who are really going through it. And we who are Christians ought to be the first ones to offer not only love, prayers, and help, but to embrace. Let me give everybody an idea here. If you've got somebody in your church, or maybe an unbeliever 
in your neighborhood or in your family and they have a child that is special needs a child that takes a lot of time and energy how about just in the name of Jesus going to him and offering to relieve some of that burden occasionally how about you and your husband go out and enjoy a night on the town on us and we'll take care of your child how about I come over and clean your house I know things are really difficult if we'll do that we'll communicate the love of God and we'll stop looking at people like their child is somehow a mistake so Patty thanks for the question it gives me the opportunity to get in my soapbox a little bit Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Greg. He says, how does someone blaspheme the Holy Spirit today? Well, Greg, the only way that we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit is by rejecting his work. Now, here's the good news about that. There's sort of a statute of limitations in reverse on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the only way we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit unto death, the unpardonable sin, is to reject the Holy Spirit's witness of Jesus unto death. If we die in unbelief, we have rejected the Spirit's witness about Jesus, and that's what blasphemy the Holy Spirit is. It's not cursing at him. It's not being frustrated and say, I don't even believe you exist anymore. That's none of that. God understands all of those things. But when we die in unbelief, whether we die at a ripe old age, an age that people would say it's time to die, or we die prematurely, at least from the perspective of earth, if we have rejected Jesus Christ, that is to blaspheme, blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. You know, I read an article yesterday um, um, that is loosely connected to this. But there was, uh, I believe in, in, in Europe, in Italy, I think, but, but I'm not quite sure. There was a 104-year-old scientist who died yesterday um, in, with assisted suicide. 104 years old. Looked to be in pretty good shape, but it, but it was what he wanted to do. He had it planned, and he followed through on his plan. He blasphemed the Holy Spirit, Greg. And he opened his eyes. The ne- very next moment, the last breath he took here, the next breath he took in torment. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God. Unfortunately, for those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, they're going to meet him as a foe rather than as a friend. So that's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Marty, we're inside four minutes. I don't think we even have time for calls if anybody want to call today. This is the quietest the phones have been all week. Marty says, how do you describe sanctification? Uh, Marty, I simplify everything. Uh, It just works for me the best. And as a teacher, it seems to to communicate the ideas better. Um, To me, sanctification is just the process of being more like Jesus every day. Being like Jesus more and more by being around him. That's what sanctification is. The word sanctify means to set apart. It's as though you were created, Marty, uh, with a purpose. And God says, okay, I'm going to set Marty aside uh, over here, and, and his purpose is going to be this. And then he'll set somebody else aside. Well, this person's purpose is going to be something else. But we're set apart for God's use and for God's glory. I always think of a golfer. In a golf bag, Marty, you know, you've got a whole bunch of clubs. If you um, aren't breaking the rules, you have 14 golf clubs. You can't have any more. And every club has a different purpose. Uh, when you want to hit the ball a long way off the tee, you pick a driver, you don't pick a putter. Uh, when you want to hit a ball 200 yards, uh, you, you pick a 5-iron. If you want to hit a ball uh, 50 yards, you pick a sandwich. Every club is set apart for a specific purpose or distance. Well, in the same way as humans, we're set apart by God, for God, 
to accomplish whatever it is he set before us. And the way we find out what that is, is to walk with Jesus every day. If we walk with him every day, we spend time with him. If we're in his word, we're going to learn who he is. We can't help but to become more and more like him. And so if we become more and more like him, that is the process that we call sanctification. As opposed to justification, justification is what happens when we're born again. All our sins are completely wiped out, past, present, and future. We're just as if we never sinned. But that's from heaven's perspective. It's the Father seeing us through the filter of the Son. But once the justification, which is positional, is accomplished, we have to work on the practical. And the practical is that, well, we still have issues, don't we? So as we walk in this world, day by day, we make mistakes. But if we spend time with Jesus, we make them less and less. They're fewer and farther between. And it's because of this process called sanctification. Ultimately, both of those justification and sanctification are going to result in glorification. That glorification is that moment when we are just like him, staring at him, and he's looking at us saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Mighty good question. Thank you very, very much. We're at the end of the program for today. Um, Thank you for the week. Lots of great questions. I want to remind you one more time that Paula uh, and I are going to uh, Beaumont for a funeral of a dear, dear friend on Monday, so we will not have a live program. Uh, I'll see you on Tuesday live. We'd love some questions then. Until then, go to church, tell people about Jesus, love somebody who looks like they're hurting, and let God smile on you and bless you in the process. Hey, you've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll see you on Monday, rebroadcast, Tuesday Live. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.